All right, there we go. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. We're continuing uh, in this series entitled Deeper, and uh, we started a few weeks ago, uh, three weeks ago exactly, but this is only the third message uh, in the series, and so I'll catch you up here in just a second, but the series entitled Deeper, and uh, man, I really hope that this has been a challenge for you. Uh, I felt like when we first started this series that this is where God wanted us to go and what He wanted us to focus on. So I think it's been a good start so far with a lot of ground still to cover. So third message today in this series entitled Deeper. Well, the very first week, I'll kind of catch you up a little bit uh, with where we've, where we've been already in this series. The very first week, we looked at this thing called a nominal Christian, right? It's kind of an anomaly in a sense, but the very first week of the series, we unpacked what a nominal Christian looks like, and we looked in a passage of Scripture in the book of John chapter 6. And so as we began to dig in there that very first week, kind of an introduction to the series, we saw a nominal Christian as that one who is content just to stay at the surface spiritually in regards to a relationship with God. Now the danger is, is that many times a nominal Christian is not a believer even at all, not a Christian at all, just simply in name only. And if you were to ask the nominal Christian, are you a Christian? They're going to say, yeah. I mean, but that yes may mean a lot of different things. One, it may mean they were raised in church. It may mean they've been in church for a long time. It may mean they had a family member, right, who was a pastor or a missionary or an evangelist or someone. It may be a political statement. They may say I'm a Christian because of their political views, right, but, but they don't understand exactly what being a Christian is according to Scripture. And so there are a lot of churches that are filled with a lot of people who are Christians in name only. In the very first week of the series, we looked at that. And we looked at how dangerous that is to only name Christ as Lord, not to really follow Him as our Lord. And so for the nominal Christian, that individual is one who really, even though they say they're a, a, a believer, there's no real fruit in their life. There, there's no increasing joy or peace or kindness or self-control or the fruits of the Spirit. They're not really being changed from the inside out in regards to their relationship with Jesus. Uh, they, they don't really have any compassion necessarily for those who may have needs in their lives. There's no hunger for the Scriptures. There's no passion for worship. You know, there, there's nothing that compels them to try to lead other people into a relationship with Christ. It's really just being a name, right? Being a Christian in name only. And it's not so much of going through a dry season. We all go through dry seasons in our Christian life. Hey, there's times for me, I work in a church, right? And there are times for me where I don't feel like reading in the Bible, when I don't feel like studying Scripture. There are times for me when I don't have the compassion that I should for others. We all go through those seasons as believers. But for the nominal Christian, that's like the default mode. That's, that's sort of where they exist, you know, with no heart for Christ, no heart for the lost, no heart for others, no drive to study the Scriptures, no desire for worship. That's where they exist. And what we found in that very first week as we looked at what it means to be a nominal Christian was that our relationship should go deeper. I mean, we should be marked, right, over time. We should be marked by a deeper, growing, abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. And being a nominal Christian is a very dangerous place to be. Jesus, when he, when he said what he said in John 6, when he really raised the bar on what it means to be identified with Christ, that it's a surrendered life. I mean, there were people, John 6, verse 66, they walked away. They said, I mean, this is too tough for us. This is, this is too involved. This requires too much. We're not ready for that kind of surrender. And they just walked away. And the Bible says they did not walk with him anymore. They would have been Christian in name only. They were nominal Christians. And that's always a very dangerous place to be. No desire to go any deeper. 
Well, two weeks ago, we celebrated the Lord's Supper. We took a little break, right, from this series. And then last Sunday, we looked at the second message in this series. And we began to look at what the dangers are of just hanging out on the surface in our relationship with God. Say you may be a genuine believer. You remember when you gave your life to Christ but there's not been a desire to go deeper with any significance at all in your life for a while, there are dangers on the surface. And just as there are dangers on the surface in the ocean with jellyfish and sharks and all kind of stuff that goes on up there, you know, there are also dangers if we only stay on the surface spiritually in our relationship with God. And we looked at what some of those dangers are. Some of those dangers are an immature faith, right? There's no ability to build on any kind of a foundation If we only stay in the surface with our relationship with God, there's no depth to our walk. Therefore, there's no ability to be able to build and to be able to grow up into maturity. Also on the surface in our relationship with Christ, there are dangers there because we become susceptible to false teaching. We become susceptible to error. I mean, if we don't know the truth, right, and we're not digging into Scripture and we're not uh, spending time with other Christians and deepening our faith and deepening our walk, then on the surface, that's kind of where the false, you know, the, the false doctrine hangs out. It's where the false teachers hang out. And a lot of times there have been people that have engaged in conversation with maybe a cult group or somebody that just really believes something unbiblical, and it's a real persuasive argument, right? And they didn't have the depth of knowledge in their Christian walk. They were just sort of led astray, you know, led astray out into the high weeds, over the guardrail, into areas where they didn't need to be, and before long, perhaps, even walking away from a biblical faith. And so there are dangers on the surface. When we dive deeply in our fellowship with Christ, when we dive deeply in a relationship with God, what that does is is it drives roots down. It gives us the ability to be able to, to build and to mature and to grow and to be useful for the kingdom of God. And so that was our second message in this series. The third message will be today with a message simply entitled, Deeper in Loving Jesus. Going deeper in loving Jesus. I've done a lot of weddings through the years, and if you talk with any pastor who's been pastoring for any amount of time, then they'll always have a wedding story, right? Of a funny story, some event that happened, right? Something that took place in the midst of their wedding, that they, uh, a wedding that they, that they officiated. They're, if you do this for long enough, you're always going to have some funny stories as it relates to weddings. Now, the problem is, I've, I've been a part of a lot of wedding ceremonies, and I've had a lot of funny moments, but I can't tell a whole lot of them because most of the people that I've done the wedding ceremony are here in this church. And so I can't really go into those stories because that would probably get me in trouble. But I can tell one in particular. It did involve somebody who was part of this church. They're not here anymore. And so um, I, can tell, I can tell that story. Uh, and I can't say their name, but they did serve as worship pastor just before Adam came. And so, <clears throat> and so I was doing the, doing the wedding ceremony, right? And... Uh, this was, I don't know, 14, 15 years ago, I guess. And, uh, and so as I'm doing the wedding, um, I, I, I realize, I hear this sound as I'm, as I'm praying. And what had happened was, during the ceremony, you know what a unity candle is, right? You know, you've got the big candle in the middle, and then you've got the two other candles. And, uh, well, inevitably, during the ceremony, one of those candles blew out. You know, one of the, the two individual candles blew out. I mean, th- this is like a nor'easter up here on this platform a lot of times, right, with the wind whipping through there. Uh, I know it's never cold out there. And so it does get a little windy up here. That was a joke. Y'all are probably freezing. And so, uh, so the, the wind just kind of blew, blew one of those candles out. So I'm standing doing the ceremony, 
And I'm facing this direction, and in front of me, the perfect person who will go uh, unmentioned by name was looking at me, just absolutely freaking out, like, the candle's out, the candle has blown out, right? And so, so I'm thinking, like, you know, what are we going to do? I mean, how are we going to do it? I mean, th- this is an important part of the ceremony. I mean, you got a unity candle. you got to have two candles lit so you can do the unity candle. And so, so I'm standing there, and I just, I just had a piece, right? I just kind of figured it'll all work out. So we get to the part of the cer- ceremony, and I'm praying. And, and after I start praying, about 10 seconds later, what had happened with my eyes closed was that the person who was the wedding director had also noticed the issue, and she ran from the back wall all the way up here to the platform, and while I'm praying, I hear, you know those lighters are about this long, I'm hearing click, 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 while I'm praying. So I just kept praying until I didn't hear clicking anymore. When the clicking stopped, I said amen, and boom, we have candles. Well, after, after the ceremony was done, I get home, and Susie and I, she said, that was the longest prayer you have ever prayed in a wedding. <laughs> honey, there was a reason. Let me tell you the story. So, you know, weddings kind of have some funny stories. So it reminds me of a little, little story. I don't know if it's true or not, but a little, little kid who was at his first wedding with his mom and dad. He's just a little guy, seven or eight years old, and he's out in the congregation. He's witnessing his very first wedding, right? So it comes to the point where there is a, um, you know, the unity candle, and so his mom thinks, this is going to be a great time for, te- for, for me to be able to teach my little son, you know, the biblical significance of marriage. And so she's explaining everything about the unity candle, whispering as they're kind of going through the motions. And, and, and suddenly the, the husband and the wife, you know, the bride and groom, they, they light that big candle in the middle, and then they, they blow out the individual candles. And, and the mom says, son, do you know the significance of what they've just done? Do you know what that means when they blew out those candles? And he said, I don't know, Mom. I guess maybe no more old flames. <laughs> you know? That really fits well in a wedding message. I mean, I, honestly, I mean, it really does. I mean, it kind of has a fit there. You know, in a sense, when you think about that, that moment... You know, what's happening when a husband and a wife say, I do, and they put those rings on their finger, what they're saying in essence, and the little kid kind of had it right, they're, what they're saying is there are no more contenders, okay, right? There are no more contenders. I mean, this is now a marriage. There is a bride. There is a groom. Now, biblically, they are one. They are husband and wife. What God has joined together, let no man separate, right? That they are one. And, and, and in a very real sense, it is saying there are no more contenders. These people are all the market, okay? There are no more contenders. There are no more rivals. They can rest in the security that that husband knows there is no one else contending for the position of husband to my wife. And the wife can have all sense of security in knowing that there are no more contenders, right? Uh, There are no more rivals here. This is my husband for the rest of our days. All bets are off. Rivals, contenders, there are no more. In a very real sense, that what, that's what that means. So when you think about the word contender, what does that word mean? Let, let's take a look at what the definition is of a contender, because you know what this is. It is a person, or in some sense at times, a group, competing with others to achieve something or, or to acquire something. It is a person or group who is competing, there is a competition there, who is competing with others to achieve something. Now, you know what this word means because often you hear it in the sports world, right? I remember as a kid, you know, boxing used to come on TV all the time when I was a kid, like I was a boxer or something, but, you know, I remember it being on all the time. And uh, you would have the heavyweight champion of the world, and then there would be the, you know, the, the leading contender. What does that mean? It meant that there was a rival who wanted his position, and he was about to go into competition 
position to earn that spot of being the heavyweight champion of the world. He was a contender. He had a legitimate shot. College football, right? There are playoffs. You get four spots that are available, and everyone is contending for one of those spots. There's a desire to be able to be one of those four that are going to have a shot at the national championship. So they are contending. They're all contenders competing against one another to try to have one of those four valued spots to get into the playoffs to ultimately become the college football champion for this particular year. You know what a contender is at some time, in some sense, maybe even in your workplace. I mean, you may work in a type of a work environment where there are contenders for your job. And you know who there are, who those people are. They are contending for your office. They are contending for your sales territory. They are contending. They are in competition against you, right? They want what you have. They are a contender, and you have to be mindful of that. So if we take that for just a moment out of our everyday world, let's move it to a spiritual world. Let's move it into a spiritual sense and look at it this way, that every single person here this morning has something that is highest, that is most, that is like the pinnacle that you strive for, that is the most important to you. Every single person does. Now, it may be your career, right? You may say, you know what, my highest, the pinnacle for me is if I get this particular position in my career. If I move up the ranks, if I get this, this job, if I get this particular uh, uh, you know, accomplishment, uh, if I get recognized by my peers, that, that's the pinnacle of my life. That's what I want. So I'm going to work 60, 70, 80 hours a week. I'm going to sacrifice other people and other things, maybe even my values, maybe even my ethics, and I'm going to do whatever it takes because this accomplishment or my career that is the pinnacle for me. Everything else revolves around that. Or you may say, you know what, wealth is the kind of the most important to me. Or maybe for a lot of people, it's just self. You know, life revolves around what I want. You know, what I feel like I need around my happiness and my sense of fulfillment. Everything else revolves specifically around that. Every single person has something that is first, that is highest, that is most, that is greatest in our lives. And many times, whatever that is, falls short of what the Bible says it should be. Look at what Paul writes in the book of Philippians, chapter 2. You don't have to turn there. Okay, We're going to get to Mark, chapter 12, in a moment. But look on the overhead behind me. And look at what Paul writes, writing to a group of Christians in the city of Philippi. He, would, he had been there uh, around the year 50, right, A.D. He wrote this letter 11 years later. Look at what he says to them. He says, For this reason also God highly exalted him, that him has a capital H, that's referencing Jesus. God highly exalted him and bestowed on him, on Jesus, the name which is above every name, right? It's above every king. It's above every kingdom. It is above every person who ever lived. The name that is above every name, so that as a result of that, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven, those who are on earth, those who are under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now here in this crowd, there's represented a lot of different things that are that pinnacle, that are that kind of that mountain peak that we strive for. But what Scripture says is there is only one. There is only one that should fill the role of highest, of greatest, of most, of best for us. And that one is the person of Jesus. And Paul nailed it right here. He said, so it's only at the name of Christ, at the name of Jesus, that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. That every knee at some point in history, in the end times, will, will ultimately bow, if not already, will bow before him and confess that he is Lord. 
that we ourselves are not Lord, that whatever we strove for is not Lord or first or greatest or most or best, that only He is Lord. And the quicker that we understand that and the earlier we understand that in life and begin to gravitate everything else around Him, the better our lives become. So here's the takeaway. I usually only give you one or so, but I'll give you two or three today. Um, Here's the first one. That Christ has no contender to his lordship except, except for those that you allow. Christ has no legitimate contender to his lordship. There is nothing that has a rightful claim to his position in your life, my life, our lives collectively, or in creation. There is nothing that has a legitimate claim to his lordship. There are no legitimate contenders to his supremacy and his lordship except for whatever contenders, illegitimate contenders I would say, whatever contenders you may allow to serve as a rival or to serve in competition against him. You know, it's interesting because Jesus spoke a little bit about this. He spoke about it a lot in Scripture. But in Mark chapter 12, we see one very, very clear passage where he himself is talking about what it means for him to be Lord, what it looks like when he is Lord, and how we can ultimately grow in depth of loving him the way that we should. So let's go ahead and turn there, or look there, in Mark chapter 12, We're going to begin in verse 28. Jesus here is surrounded by a group of people. In the crowd this particular day is one who is called a scribe. Your translation may say a lawyer. Lawyer or scribe. Regardless, it would have been one who was very well trained. They were students of the law, and they were defenders of the law, and they were teachers of the law. Again, this is first century Judaism, basically, is kind of where we're set. And so a scribe or a lawyer, however your translation reads, would be one that was, was highly educated. They were very well respected. Their profession was held in extremely high regard in their culture. They would have been someone to whom others would have looked for guidance to some degree. They were mainly Pharisees for the most part, but they were in a profession that was very honored. And so on this particular day, one of them has come to Jesus, and he asks Jesus a question, perhaps the best question he could have asked. And it's interesting, if not maybe even a little bit shocking, how Jesus answers. And so let's jump in here, Mark chapter 12, verse 28 through verse 30. So Mark writes, and he says, One of the scribes or lawyers came, and he heard them arguing, not Jesus, but others that were listening to what he was saying and arguing about that. And recognizing that he, Jesus, had answered them well, asked him, all right? So the scribe comes to Jesus, asks asks him a question. What commandment is the foremost of all? Or what commandment would you say, Jesus, is the greatest of all? Jesus answered, the foremost or the greatest is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. So he comes, the scribe, he comes to Jesus and he asks the question, what is the greatest commandment of all time? Of all the commands that God would ever give Jesus, going from all the Old Testament, from Adam and Eve to uh, all the way through the time of Moses and up through uh, uh, the kings and the prophets, uh, what is the greatest commandment, Jesus, that God has ever given? What would you say is the greatest commandment of all time? And notice, he didn't say anything about adultery. He didn't say, don't commit adultery. He didn't say, don't murder 
I mean, a lot of people would have said that's probably the greatest. If we only didn't kill each other, we'd have a lot of peace in this world. He didn't say that. He didn't say uh, anything about about not hating or about not lying or any of that. He didn't name any of those commandments. He didn't say the greatest commandment is to brush and floss daily, eat all your veggies, look both ways before you cross the street. He didn't go into any of that. He said, here's the greatest commandment. Of all the commandments God has ever given or could have ever been given on this earth, here's the greatest one, guys. Are you ready? Here it comes. Here's the greatest command of all time. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, with all of your strength. Now, he's going to give another one. We'll get to that one next week as the second greatest. But he says, you know, the greatest one, it all boils down to what you do about loving Jesus. Loving the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength. No contenders. He said, the way you love God is that you love him so deeply that you can rightly say there are no contenders for your love of him. Not another person. Jesus would make the shocking statement elsewhere in the, in the Gospels. He would say that if a man doesn't first hate his father and hate his mother, I mean, he, he, he goes deep. And he's not saying we need to hate because Scripture clearly teaches that hatred is as good as murder, you know, in regards to the heart position. But what he's saying is, is that your love of Jesus should be of such a magnitude, and, and mine, all of us, should be of such magnitude that even your love of the people you love the most on this earth, your mom, your dad, your husband, your wife, your kids, your closest friends, that your love of them pales in comparison to how deeply you have love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That we love him with every fiber of who we are, with every part of our heart and every part of our soul, every part of our mind, every part of our strength, that we love him that deeply. In fact, I think you could kind of summarize it this way, and this is another takeaway here, that our outward life is really, in a sense, driven by our inward devotion, that wherever our devotion is on the inside is going to actually manifest itself on how we live our lives outwardly. And if we're really out of touch on the inside, if, if our devotion is not centered on the right place on the inside, then there are going to be some messed up things that we're going to be doing on the outside that we have to get it right in here if we're going to be able to live it right out there. Our outward life is driven by our inward devotion. Jesus will demonstrate this when it comes to the topic of loving Christ. Look at what he says. Again, you don't have to turn here. Look at what he says in John chapter 14, verse 15. This is where he's going, I think, with this. In John 14, verse 15, he says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? If it's right on the inside, it is also going to be right on the outside. That if your inward devotion is proper, if it's in the right place, then it's going to show itself, it's going to manifest itself in the way you live your life outwardly. He says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, let me just say, when I read this verse all through the years, I think I kind of read it a little bit backwards to some degree, because I would, I would think, all right, so if I obey God, that means I love God. So it's like this big test. God's looking down, and, he, and he's saying, okay, so Brooks obeyed me, you know, uh, 51% of the time this week. Boy, that means he really loves me. And then in my mind, you almost envision, but then there's another week, God looks down and he says, well, Brooks only obeyed me 49% of the time or 28% or 15% of the time this week. So yeah, it looks like Brooks doesn't love me, right? It was almost like that measuring scale. I don't think that's where God is going with this. 
I don't think he's saying obedience equals love. Why, why is that? Because we obey in a lot of ways people that we don't love, right? Um, use an example out of the workplace, say for you. Uh, say you've got a supervisor who gives you certain directives or certain commands or certain instructions, and uh, you know that if you don't obey those, there's going to be consequences. You're going to, you know, have a, you know, your pay is going to be you know, decreased, or you're going to lose your job, or somebody else will be given your job. And so what is it you do? You obey your supervisor, even though ultimately you may not have a whole lot of great love for that person. You might not like them. You might just can't, you can't stand them. You can't wait for the day when they take a job somewhere else, but you're going to obey them, right? You're going to obey their commands, even though you don't have love for them. Now, this is really awkward. I know if you invited your supervisor to church today and they're sitting with you, but I think all that is still true. We can obey those that we don't necessarily love, so obedience doesn't equal love. That's, I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. I don't think he says love equals obedience. I think what he's getting at here is that if we love, if love is present on the inside and we have that type of devotion to Christ that says, I love him with all my heart and all my mind and all my soul and all my strength, that's going to show itself outwardly. We can't help but obey him. We can't help but do what we know pleases him. And yes, there will be times when we get in the way. And yes, there will be times where we become selfish, right? We're all in process of being grown in the image of Christ. But by and large, as default mode, right, if we love him the way he speaks of in answer to the great commandment with all of who we are, and if that's growing deeper and deeper and deeper, then our obedience is also going to go wider and wider and wider. Because what goes on in here is going to show itself outwardly in the way that we live. Loving him with everything, ultimately, that we are. So here, here's the million-dollar question. Here's the million-dollar question. So how do we love Christ more deeply? How do we love him more deeply? Somebody comes to you at work tomorrow. Somebody comes to you in the gym tomorrow. They say, you know, I've been thinking about this a lot. I feel like I need to love Christ more. Can you tell me, how do I love Jesus more? What would you say to them? Well, go to church. <laughs> He'll know you love you. You love him if you go to church. I think that's a little bit backwards. So what do we really say if someone were to ask us, so how do I love Jesus more deeply? Let me give you a couple things and I'm done. Just a couple thoughts for you to chew on and consider. I think one way that we love him more deeply is by, first of all, recognizing his demonstration of his love for you. Kind of starting with what he's already done for us. Recognizing his demonstration of love for you in your life. Recognizing the depths that he went to show that he loved you. You know, it, it, sometimes I think as believers, we, we lose sight of this. We get so used to the gospel and we get so accustomed to hearing the message of how much God loves us and he died on the cross for us. It's almost like we become immune to it. It's like an immunization. You know, you go to the doctor, you get an immunization. They give you a shot. They give you just enough of that virus so that you don't catch the real thing. If we're not careful, I preached a message on this one time. This could go really long and I'll spare you because I know you're probably getting hungry. But in a sense, a lot of people, a lot of believers have been immunized with Jesus, just enough of him to get saved, and they've got just enough of the real thing to where they're now immune to ultimately catching the real fire and passion for who Jesus is. 
They're so accustomed to the message of the gospel. And they get to that point in the, in the message or whenever, they, whenever they're hearing someone speak about spiritual things to where it talks about his sacrifice on the cross and how he died in our place and gave a sacrifice for us. And we mentally check out and we click off and we go to the grocery list or we go to what's coming on later on on TV and we check out and we tell ourselves that we've heard this all before. And I'll be honest with you, I didn't say this first service. There are times that I get, I'm standing up here on this spot preaching a passage of Scripture, and I try to share the gospel in some form, some fashion, every single Sunday. And I will get to the gospel message, and I will hear in the back of my mind, while I'm standing here looking you in the eye, I will hear in the back of my mind, they have heard this over and over and over. And the enemy does not want us to hear the gospel. And the enemy wants us to lose sight of the majesty and the beauty of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. And when we hear it, we will be tempted to just check out. And what happens is over time, we lose sight of how much God loves us. That when he looked down at your life and when he looked down at my life, he said, that boy is bankrupt and he has nothing to bring to the table of any value whatsoever to me. But man, I love that boy. And I sent my son because I love him to die in the place that he deserved on a cross that Jesus doesn't deserve because I want a relationship with him. And he says the same exact thing for you. No matter where you've been, no matter what you've done, no matter how far you've wandered, no matter how many people you've hurt, no matter how much of a grease fire your life has been, he loves you so much. He came and he died in your place. Romans 5, 8 says that he demonstrates his own love towards us in this, that while we were yet sinners, I know we weren't there 2,000 years ago, but figuratively speaking, it's as though we had the whip in our hands and we had just stepped into it, about to just smack the Savior across the back. While we were yet sinners in that position, he died for us. When we had nothing to offer, nothing to give, no value whatsoever, he died for you. And when we begin to catch a glimpse and we pray, God, would you just give me a glimpse of that great love you have for me? Because I'll be honest, God, I've lost sight of it. I've gotten busy. I've gotten busy with responsibilities and work and balancing my home budget. And I've gotten busy with stuff on the weekends. And I've lost sight of how much you love me. God, would you just give me that glimpse again? I think he'll do it. And when we get that kind of a glimpse of how much he loves us, I tell you, if we love him, we will obey him. When we see that love he has for us, it can only drive our love for him deeper. My dad was a good man. He, um, he wasn't perfect, and I'm sure there were some do-overs in his life, but he was a really good dad. And he poured into us, and he provided for us. And he wasn't always the most talkative person, but he had probably the most gentle spirit that I've, that I've ever seen patient, kind. You know, if I'd gone to my dad when I was eight years old and said, Dad, I love you with all my heart. And, and Dad, I, I, just, you know, I just want you to know, whatever you want, I'll do. I just, I just want to follow you. Can I do that? You think he's going to say, thank you, son. Now go to your room and don't come out for two weeks. You think he's going to say that? No, he's not going to say that. He's going to pull me in and give me a hug and say, Son, I love you more than you can even imagine. And what you've just said to me moves my heart. And I want you to know from this day forward, as you follow me, I'm really glad you're going to. 
and I'll do whatever you need. And I'm not going to make the path miraculously easy because that's not what's most important. But I promise you that I will be with you and I will walk with you and I will bless you and I will love you and I will always be closer to you than any friend or person you can ever imagine. So why do we think God does different? Why do we get so afraid to say, God, I surrender my life to you to follow you wherever you lead as though he's going to say, now go to your room for two weeks. <laughs> he loves you and he loves you deeply. And when we catch a glimpse of that love, the result is that we understand and we're motivated to love Christ a little more deeply ourselves. 1 John chapter 4, verse 9 and 10. Look at what it says here real quickly. By this, the love of God was manifested in us. Here's how he showed it. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Not, not just make it, not just exist, that we might really live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, it doesn't start there, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know what that word propitiation is? It means satisfactory payment. So that when Jesus died on the cross and, uh, and, and he looked to the Father and said, it is finished, and he gave up his spirit and he died, the Father looked at that sacrifice for mankind and said, sufficient. So that all who have sinned, can ultimately one day stand before the Father clean and pure and forgiven with a clean slate if we only choose to turn from our sin and give our lives to the Savior who took our payment for us. Satisfactory payment. He is the propitiation, the satisfactory payment for our sins. Why? Because He loves you. What's the second and the final way this morning that we can love Christ more deeply? I think a second way is by naming and following Him as first and highest in our lives. It's kind of what you said when you got saved, isn't it? Lord Jesus, I have sinned and need forgiveness. Would you forgive me starting today? And would you be first and would you be highest? Would you be Lord and would you be Savior from this day forward? That's kind of what we say. But sometimes as believers, we wander and we lose sight. And I think it doesn't hurt to remember what Paul wrote in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. And that we perhaps at times come back and say, you know what, Jesus, I know that I haven't lost my salvation, but today I've been reminded of how badly I want you to be first and to be highest for me all over again. Not getting saved all over again, but just getting things right. And maybe for some of you this morning, what will help you to love Christ more deeply is to ultimately begin to not just see what he's done for you and how much he loves you, but right where you are today, to have a little conversation with him and let him know that you want him to be first and highest and greatest and most all over again. So how do you boil all this down? I think you boil it down this way, that our walk goes deeper when we love Christ most. I think he'll give you that love, that love that's with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. If one, you really want it, and two, if you're really asking for it. Let's pray.